Blog Talk Radio. No mind your national 
This is Charles Collingsworth at the White House in Washington, D.C. For many of you, this will be your first visit to this historical landmark. Our tour through these hallowed halls will be conducted by the First Lady. Father, and your white great grandfather sold 
killed my great-grandfather and your white-grandfather raped my grandmother and your father stole, cheated, lied, and robbed my father. What kind of a fool would I have to be to say, come, my friend, to the white daughter and son? Good evening, America. This is your president. Please listen carefully to the announcement I'm about to make. After careful consideration and research, Vice President Duke, Congress, and myself have concluded that black people have not advanced technologically. Their educational testing scores are on a rapid decline. The vast majority of them are on welfare and producing babies at a faster rate than they can support them, and we will not carry them anymore. We are left with no other choice but to put slavery back into effect. All blacks will report to the designated camps in their area to receive further orders. The only blacks excused will be those serving in the United States military and the police. Any blacks who do not cooperate will be terminated immediately. I repeat, slavery is back in effect. We at war! That's what I told you. I know you heard what the president said, and if the nigga don't move, then he's dead. It's time for us to take the stand. Woman to woman and man to man. Blood pressure through your veins, you feel the fear. Who'd have thought that it could happen here? In the land of the free, home of the brave. The year's 95, you're a slave. Get a 
those who have lifted them up, Howard. Paul, you conservatives make a mistake. You can't afford to strangle hope in people. Without hope, people become dangerous. No, Howard. You liberals have let them invade our society. You give them jobs, political jobs. Paul, you missed the point. It's only the smart ones we move up. <laughs> that makes it even worse. No, no, we have to move them up. If we leave a smart one in the ghetto, he might develop into a leader against us. But if we raise him up into white society, we neutralize him. He feels compelled to try to act like us. He loses his identity and uh, his racial anger, if he has any. He becomes alien to his brothers. They realize he's sold them out and they grow to hate him. He becomes worthless to them and safe for us. Uh, no, thank you. In fact, in his love for the creature comforts, except for his color, he's become one of us. Uh, it's you liberals who have lifted them up, Howard. Paul, you conservatives make a mistake. You can't afford to strangle hope in people. Without hope, people become dangerous. No, Howard, you liberals have let them invade our society. You give them jobs, political jobs. Paul, you missed the point. It's only the smart ones we move up. <laughs> that makes it even worse. No, no, we have to move them up. If we leave a smart one in the ghetto, he might develop into a leader against us. But if we raise him up into white society, we neutralize him. He feels compelled to try to act like us. He loses his identity and uh, his racial anger, if he has any. He becomes alien to his brothers. They realize he's sold them out and they grow to hate him. He becomes worthless to them and safe for us. Uh, no, thank you. In fact, in his love for the creature comforts, except for his color, he's become one of us. We welcome you to Africa on the Move on the 28th day of January 2024. And theme tonight is Africa. He is fighting on many fronts. That's right, Africa is fighting on many fronts. We'll discuss this topic and others, and we will also have a special guest that will appear on the show later on, Sister Camille Landry, where she will speak on the issue of human rights as a human rights advocate, and she's a representative of Alliance for Global Justice. After her interview, we will follow up with our theme tonight, which is, again, Africa is fighting on many fronts. Like always, we will introduce to you our political panelists and analysts. They're in the seat, and they're going to take the heat. As they define it, they will stand behind it. They may not give you what you want, but they definitely do the best to give you what you need. This is Africa on the Moon. I'm your host, Brother Africa, and let's get started with our party by introducing you to our political panelists and analysts for today's program. First, we'd like to welcome and bring in Brother Haki, who is the organizer for the African Awareness Association. Welcome, Brother Haki, to Africa on the Moon. Brother, <coughs> Brother Africa, thanks for having me. My name is Haki Kamathi Mashoki. Currently, I'm with African Awareness. And Brother Africa, you know my thing is institution building. 
But certainly, you know, when we talk about institution building, one of the things we've got to be keenly aware of, and that is a question in terms of strategy in society. When we talk about strategies, it's important to all societies mainly because it ensures uh, the leaders of those societies uh, maintain order. Now, when you talk about, you know, very wealthy societies in terms of dispersion of existing society, you have to have some means to, to, to keep people confused as to why these kind of disparities in society which, uh, exist. Why do you have, you know, a relatively small number of people extremely rich, but an overwhelming number of people are poor? So given that, uh, that contradiction, uh, strategy becomes important in terms of the means, in terms of confusing people around what's really going on. So I thought I'd talk a little bit about strategy and the relationship between strategy and COVID-19. I think people might find this uh, very, very interesting. But in any event, check this out, Brother Africa. Three months after the COVID-19 lockdown, the World Economic Forum addressed the question of global governance, among other concerns. Global governance was and is a considerable concern because the realization of capitalism is not sustainable. The decline of capitalism implicitly imperils the world global order, and with that decline of Western hegemony or economic political control of the world, specifically for the U.S. imperialism. The challenge for U.S. historically and presently is how to implement strategy that effectively could deceive the masses while simultaneously increasing the longevity of a system that serves the interests of the elite. This decay of the U.S. economy has become increasingly difficult to hide and has become particularly poignant over the last 40 years or so. Rising numbers of unemployed in the U.S. are no longer relegated to the working class but white-collar workers as well. <clears throat> Usual strategy of blaming the victims of unemployment has become difficult to rationalize because increasingly college-educated individuals are also struggling to find jobs. This reality, being a clear indictment of capitalism, requires a different strategy to justify mass unemployment. The emergence of COVID-19 would serve a dual purpose. It could, just, one, it could justify the elimination of jobs, and two, more importantly, it could improve, impose the necessity of, of instability in the population's lives with a sense of hopelessness mixed with more effective social control by states as jobs disappear forever. Now, it could be noted that, <clears throat> it should be noted that the election of Donald Trump as savior is simply the other part of the strategy as the U.S. economy continues to decline. Now, prior to the existence of COVID-19, prior to the year 2019, fourth quarter GDP and two quarters prior in the year 2017, the U.S. economy declined two consecutive quarters. By the year 2018, recessionary levels resulting from reduced trading among countries and declining economic activity saw declines of GDP production at the steepest decline in U.S. history, declines along the order of 9.1% well into the year 2020. Unlike the usual seven to 10 year recessionary cycle affiliated with capitalism, this level of economic strife could not be glibly explained away and needed a more intricate strategy to appease not just the domestic population, but a strategy, but a, but a strategy to provide cover for Western elites whose power and status is tied directly to U.S. imperialism. As a result of interlocking financial institutions between U.S. and Western states, any U.S. economic downturn in the U.S. affects Western economies. Now, given the unprecedented levels of poverty, homelessness, unemployment, and theft in many Western countries, left politicians in Europe hard-pressed to explain the abandonment of social safety protections and were in need of grand strategy to justify glaring inequalities. The grand strategy put forth by Western elites entails a dual strategy where inequality would, would be seen as justifiable while undermining China's growth. This was the role of COVID-19 vaccination. 
Now, what's this a, a king's strategy? Not at all. And listen to me. Allow me to explain. Now, the level of plausible deniability or informant confusion is key to an effective strategy of deceit. COVID-19 vaccinations failed in this regard. According to Dr. Dennis Raincoat, a physicist and scientist, and also author of an article entitled There Was No Pandemic, published by Global Research News, he talked about the methodology of measuring pandemics and its impact on specific demographics over long periods of days, weeks, months, and years were excluded by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention methodology. Called the all-cause mortality methodology, Dr. Raincoat was able to pinpoint the deception being disseminated about COVID-19 and the effectiveness of vaccines by Pfizer and Moderna. Dr. Raincoat outlines the history of viruses and mortality or deaths resulting from such viruses. He states, quote, between 1957 and 1958, Cinematosis Disease Control identified H2N2 virus or the bird flu virus. In 1968, H3NE uh, was, uh, was, was also identified, and H3N2 was supposedly the dominant strain of the bird flu. In 2009, H1N1 was labeled a problematic virus. Two problems with those analyses. At no point did the U.S. government validate alleged viruses as pandemics. And secondly, alleged viruses never manifested discernible mortality or levels of death. If this is not disconcerting enough, the original presence of H1N1 in 1918 was alleged to be the textbook viral rep- respiratory disease pandemic uh, occurring at a time prior to the mass use of uh, uh, antibiotics, which began in the year 1928. The report goes on to say, unlike H1N1 virus in 2009, the H1N1 virus in 1918 existed at a time of poor sanitation, poor hygiene practices, and economic stress. Later, it was ascertained ensuing deaths were from bacterial pneumonia, not H1N1 virus. While plausible deniability is not needed in terms of a threat in Dr. Raincoat's analysis, other examples of COVID-19 virus efficacy or effectiveness on unleashing large-scale deaths have been greatly exaggerated for political effect. For example, most scientists agree timing is key to viruses spreading. In the case of COVID-19 virus, it was di- documented in March 11, 20, year 2020. We were consistently told the epicenter of the virus originated in Wuhan, China, around December year 2019. Implication being, in three months, the virus traveled 7,058 miles to the northern hemisphere in the west, impacting U.S. and Europe, while also impacting North Africa and most of Asia simultaneously. It collected landmass of over 26 million miles. Many scientists allege the timing associated with the spread of COVID-19 is questionable, given the calculated time needed to spread would take months, if not years, with or without airplanes. Even more perplexing, Europe and North Africa are closer to China, but yet, COVID-19 is documented arriving there or at the same time in these, in these locations. When, consider, when considering transference of viruses within the context of a household, the timing can be varied between weeks, months, or even sometimes never. Given the exactitude of virus dissemination throughout the world, one would have to surmise this virus was assisted or it was, at the, at the very least, calculated to form an atmosphere as a means to divert attention from economic roles of capitalism. Now, in regard to diversion, I think this is important to point out. Undermining China's economic growth is, is paramount for U.S. elites. Standard strategies like sanctions, diplomatic pressures, and cyber warfare have, 
have not yielded credible results in damaging China's economic growth. The only viable strategy to derail China's economic growth lies in attacking China's economy directly. While economic integration was a plus in moving U.S. production abroad, U.S. intelligence agencies surmised U.S. factors leaving China would vastly cripple China's uh, economy, making them more susceptible to U.S. manipulation of their economy. However, it, was not, it has not worked. COVID-19 was offered the best opportunity to limit China's economy, but that too failed. China, China's, China economy would be undermined, excuse me, China's economy will be undermined by just sabotaging the global economy. <clears throat> and COVID became large in that regard. The strategy goes, by jeopardizing global production, by shutting down in- industry to tackle the COVID pandemic, this will result in, in inflation, making businesses opportunity more costly. Under this logic, China, with the largest GDP of the world, would suffer more economically and would make the decision to cut production, reduce job expansion, and cut ties in terms of investments to, to the global south, particularly Africa. Instead, China's strategy entailed the exact opposite approach. China actually increased infrastructure spending and, and, and exports. As a result, China's GDP expanded, and by the end of the declared pandemic, uh, China's economy grew 40% according to some government uh, economists. Conversely, by the year 2021, GDP output of growth in Europe after the pandemic only reached the growth of pandemic, pre-pandemic levels. In the U.S., post-pandemic growth only reached 3% with non-farm or industry jobs losing 21 million jobs in which most jobs never would return. Now, the brilliance of the Chinese response to COVID-19 should never be dismissed. Rather than point out the uselessness of social distancing, masks, or plexiglass barriers against COVID-19, China acquiesced to the game by going along with the popular convention extolled by the West. China instead produced its own vaccines, refusing to accept Western vaccines. Fully aware of herd immunity or the low incidence of death from pandemics, as documented by Dr. Renko, China realized the conventional wisdom that some, some may die, but the majority will not succumb to death from viruses that have existed for a very long time under stable conditions and stable systems. In hindsight, it can be concluded China's low incidence of COVID-19 transmission has more to do with the rejection of Western technology and vaccines, which had less to do with the health of human beings and more to do with the preservation of capitalism and willing use of test subjects uh, for nanotechnology activation. Maybe this is why pharmaceuticals were shielded from criminal or civil liability by the U.S. government. Uh, this and, 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 and finally, in concluding, I would simply say that this was and is a strategy, pure and simple. I think it's important that we understand the nature of the beast. And so when we talk about it in terms of the kind of deception uh, that, uh, that, is, that, is, that is played out in society, we have to understand fully that the kind of deception that, these, that the leaders would engage in is, 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 is very, very pervasive and is very, very intricate. So when they tell you something and, and you question it, by all means, you should follow up in terms of research and exactly what you've been told, because a lot of the stuff that we've been told across the board is not true at all. And we have to understand that and history is a very, very viable tool in terms of assessing, you know, just when and how we're being lied to. And with that, Brother Africa, I conclude. Thank you, Brother Hockey, for your commentary. Um, if you didn't get a Dean, you definitely got a man. You got to do a death shot. Let's move on to Brother Anthony. He represents and a member of the Af- all African People, Revolutionary Party, GC, 
and we would like to welcome him to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Brother Anthony. Thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. I, my name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. We have this objective because it is the only one that will solve the major ideological problems Africans are facing throughout the world. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Following Brother Anthony, we now will bring in Brother Moses, who's a member of the D.C. Metro Coalition in solidarity with the Cuban Revolution. We now welcome Brother Moses to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Brother Moses. Are you there, Brother Moses? Okay, let's move forward. Next, we bring in Sister Eleanor, who is also a member of the D.C. Metro Coalition in solidarity of the Cuban Revolution. We welcome Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses, and I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. We don't reverse correct verdicts. I'm pro-choice, and I vote. I bear witness that women hold up half the sky. Therefore, I'm for the Equal Rights Amendment, Equal Rights, E-R-A-S. And we continue to fight to unite the many, to defeat the few, to gather together the, the interests of the many as opposed to the interests of a handful of profit-driven capitalists. And we have to unite to defeat their interests. I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And I'll correct my board. I believe that Sister Eleanor now. Sister Eleanor, can you hear us? Welcome to Africa on the Moon. Good evening. Yes, good evening, Brother Africa, and to my fellow panelists and to our listening audience in the United States and abroad. My name is Eleanor Johnson. I'm an artist, human rights advocate, and educator. I'm delighted to participate in this evening's forum and look forward to an exciting conversation. And uh, again, good evening to everyone. And thank you so much for having me, Brother Africa. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. And I believe we have a special visitor. Um, Calling your last four numbers one one two five. Your last four numbers are one one two five. If you are planning on participating, will you please introduce yourself? Call the one one two five. Welcome to Africa on the Moon. One one two five. 
of our guests who are not participating, maybe just listen. We'd like to thank them for 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 chiming in on today's program. What we're gonna do right now after going to move is we invite our public to call in at three two three six seven nine oh eight four one. When we come back we're gonna talk about what's going on in your world and the community. Just a particular segment we're gonna discuss this particular topic that we found of interest and is going on around the world as Africa and African people are becoming under attack under Zionism. There's a piece you can find on YouTube titled Unforgettable Clash, Cornel West Lashes Hannity's Zionist Talking Point. We're going to talk about that and the whole subject of this whole issue of Zionism attacking Africa and African people when we return. This is Brother Africa, and this is Africa on the Move. We'll be right back. A negative attitude towards Africa. In San Francisco, on African Liberation Day, Brother Walter Rodney, an African historian, noted both the importance of African Liberation Day in terms of our African identity and some of the root causes for our problem of identification. I have met brothers and sisters who say that their mother tongue, quote unquote, is French, Spanish, Dutch, Portuguese, as well as English, which we speak. And because of this, we have a problem of identification. We do not know whom we are. And that is why this gathering is of great symbolic importance, because it is an act of identification. We are saying that we identify with the African people of the African continent. We are saying that we are an African people. And when we make this identification, have no illusions about the fact that this is a very revolutionary initiative. It is a rejection of every other form of identification which the white society has asked us to accept. Let me draw your attention to something which white universities and white libraries practice. And this is a university community. Numerous universities lie around this land. Go into their libraries and check the Library of Congress cards on the Europe or Europeans. You will find all entries listed concerning the continent of Europe. You will also find entries listed about Europeans in East Africa, Europeans in North Africa, Europeans in Asia and Australia. Look under the Chinese, you will find entries listed not only for mainland China, but for Malaysia and for the Chinese in, in, the, in North America. But look on the Africa and the Africans, the only entries on the Africans relate to the continent itself. There are no entries on the Africans overseas. There is no such category. Africans who have been raped from the continent mysteriously disappear and become Negroes.
two minutes. Oh, modern time you can't help but say the word Palestine people there have lost their land some have lost their home they live in other countries their freedom almost gone Palestine Palestine. needs her freedom freedom. Palestine Needs our love, needs our love, Palestine. Needs her freedom, Palestine. Needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why. 
People cannot live, so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth, take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do, because Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. People of all countries, of every race, and creed. We need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed. Plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom, needs her freedom. Palestine needs our I do welcome you back to Africa on the Move on the 28th day of January 2024. We say we come to speak truth to the powerful and the powerless. There's an there's issue going on within the African community around the question and the continued struggle of fighting against Zionism. Zionism seems to be taking a even stronger position today where they have declared African people and Africa as their enemy. Part of this declaration is the declaration of intimidating people the right to speak to truth and justice. And what we want to do today is we want to direct you to a real interesting segment or a feature on YouTube titled Unforgettable Clash, Cornel West Marsh's Hannity's Zionist Talking Point. And one of the things that came out from this particular discussion, one can surmise is that if you look at all of the major media, uh, was it print or digital, these media media resent their position in terms of being pro-Zionist, and they were not ready to speak truth to power. And one of the questions we would like to ask our independent uh, panelists and analysts today, their opinion on the subject, as it relates to this issue of Zionism, when you watch that particular um, clipping, there was many issues raised, but this question of Zionism, what is it about Zionism that have them openly then declaring Africa, African people as our enemy? What has Africa done to Zionism? No more than try to fight for the truth. So, Brother Anthony, when you look at the piece, what are some of the issues that came out from your perspective when you look at this particular piece um, titled Unforgettable Clash, Cornel West, Nash's 
Heritage Zionist Talking Point, Brother Anthony. Yes, uh, several issues uh, come to mind. One is um, is that uh, Zionists have taken advantage of um, of the drive to fit in. Uh, you know, uh, to be uh, to be part of something, even though we do not have the tools necessary to succeed in that area. Uh, one example is, uh, you know, our drive uh, to get accepted by these Ivy League institutions like uh, Cornell, uh, MIT, Harvard, Yale, et cetera. And uh, we do not have the tools necessary to fit in and also and also to engage in the struggles necessary uh to uh, ensure that our uh you know uh liberty and independence is intact and uh and um you know as was pointed out the moderator of the video pointed out Hannity is an actor and he uh and he raises um uh, you know uh, talking points and um it shows that we are uh that all that the masses of african people are victims of zionism as are the palestinians who are uh sparking uh this uh this fight against zionism um uh, uh you know uh and uh africans are starting to see that that uh that they uh that uh settler colonialism racism uh, uh knows no bounds it 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 affects uh uh palestinians in a similar way that it, uh that racism affects africans inside the u s and uh people are starting to realize that there is a commonality between settler colonial countries. And uh and if we if we study our history carefully, this should not be surprising. Uh you know, they uh they uh share talking points and uh, they share technology. And so, uh, you know, so uh, that's why we're fighting on so many different fronts, because our enemy changes strategy and tactics all the time. And uh, we have to be better organized to, to wage and effect the struggle against that. Thank you, Brother Evans. Brother Haki. We see the Zionist movement is throwing their influence in the academic community. For example, the sister who was the president of Harvard, she's been attacked. They have created the conditions where they had to make where they made her resign her position on this so-called illusion of plagiarism. 
We can see where they're attacking people who are not coming out pro-Israel as relates to the confrontation between what's going on in the West Bank and the Zionist State of Israel. And we can see where they're controlling African politicians who scared to come out in opposition to the mass killings that is taking place inside the West Bank and against the Palestinian people. From your perspective, Brother Haki, when you look at the role of Zionism and look at this particular documentary, what are some of the issues that came to light in terms of your understanding of why Zionism um, is raising havoc in our community and throughout the world? Your perspective, Brother Haki, talk to us. Yeah, well, you know, you know, one thing, Brother Africa, I think, uh, you know, first and foremost, we have to fundamentally understand that when we talk about Judaism, Judaism is a, is a religion or a way of life. It's not a, it's not a people. So this, uh, this, so this branding of, of, of so-called, you know, Zionists as a people is political at its, at its heart. And so we have to understand, so we talk about the role of politics, they will understand that the, the question in terms of morality, even in terms of the 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 the, the, the just uh, disposition of religion, is somehow suspended when it comes to Zionism. So, in fact, when we talk about the leaders, you know, uh, or the originators of Zionism, these people weren't religion at all. They, as a matter of fact, they were they were uh, they were agnostic. They were atheists. And so clearly, you know, so we understand the political character in terms of you know this whole thing we call Zionism. Now, one of the things when we talk about the political curve of Zionism, that we understand that anything that that potentially could expose these people for who they are is going to be attacked. African people have a long and glorious history in terms of not only fighting for what's right, but essentially speaking truth to power. And when African people speak, people around the world listen because given the fact that the, the level of oppression African people have to endure in American society – when African people speak, the world listens because they want to know, you know, not only are we are we aware in terms of what's going on, but to the extent that there's oppression is impacting on our ability in terms of survival in the society. So for those reasons, people tend to listen when African people speak. So the Zionists are, are quite aware in terms of the kind of uh, 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 the kind of uh, attention are given to Africans when they speak. So when Africans talk about in terms of the, his, the historical wrongs committed by Zionism. When it talks about the systematic killing of of um, of, of Palestinians, uh, we do so because we understand that you know not only is Zionism very very destructive to the Palestinian people, but we also understand in the context of North America, Zionism is very destructive to African people. In fact, when you start talking about in terms of dismantling all of these social programs in terms of uh, assisting African people in terms of dealing with some suppression in society, the Zionists are out front in terms of leading the call, leading the charge in terms of undermining all those programs that are on some level are benefit to African people. Whether we talk about in terms of, you know, uh, 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 being admitted to these, these so-called upper league, so high, high league uh, universities, uh, whether we're talking about in terms of access, you know, to quality homes in certain neighborhoods, all of these things are being uh, attacked by designers' forces. And so, so in that regard, clearly there is a line of demarcation that designers are creating uh, you know, they're not being created by African people, but in fact being created by Zionists in terms of their actions and their behavior, which says that they're pro, they're anti-African. Now, as far as this question in terms of in terms of um, anti-Semitism, I think one of the things that when we talk about, you know, Sister Gay, uh, Dr. Gay, uh, the sister was the president of of um, of, uh, of, of of Harvard, uh, we got to keep in mind that this was a calculated attack against her character because a lot of those allegations in terms of plagiarism. 
uh, were, 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 were bogus. In other words, uh, so when you talk about the question in terms of uh, uh, plagiarism, there are particular characters, uh, particular, uh, 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 particular elements that are involved in terms of defining what is, what is plagiarism. Uh, Sometimes when you when you when you when you take a statement and um, and, and, and you under, understand the gist of the statement, but you rearrange that statement to reflect your point of views, uh, it's not considered plagiarism. You see, and so you so there's a very very strict rules in terms of defining what is plagiarism, what is plagiarism, and what is not. But what they unique what they uniquely did was to somehow look at some of her writings and stretch the meaning in terms of plagiarism to make it look like she's a plagiarist. But that, the point was not so much to prove that she was a plagiarist. The, 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 the point was to, was to uh, demean her character and make it look like she's not worthy. That was the whole point. And so in the making her look unworthy, it demonizes other African people who are at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, uh, MIT, uh, uh, University of Penn, and so forth and so on. So that was part of the strategy. So again, we're talking about Zionists who are at the forefront in terms of you know implementing these kind of strategies in opposition to to the advancement of African people in society. So clearly, we understand. So when we see a situation in like in Palestine, where where Palestinians are being killed ruthlessly, when to date we're talking about uh, between twelve to twenty thousand men, women, and children, uh, and disproportionate amount of children being killed. When we look at something like that, clearly that is genocidal. There is no justification legally. They can justify that kind of death over a relatively short period of time, we're talking about months, and not see it as genocidal. I remember a situation in Brooklyn uh, in which uh, there was a conflict between the African community and uh, the designers community in, in, in Brooklyn. And the designers' position, after a few designers got beat up, they started saying that, well, the African community was committing a pogrom against the Jewish community. And the only thing that happened was a few of them got beaten up in terms of confrontations. But again, it's go, it goes back to the question in terms of intent. So if your intent in terms of to, is to, 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 to justify uh, your wrongs, then you can find almost any kind of reason at all in terms of justifying you know, uh, the demonization of people. Even to the extent when, you, when you're committing genocide against a people, you can still find meaningful ways in terms of actually, at least in their mind, meaningful ways in it, to justify the, 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 the wholesale murder and slaughter genocide against a people. So clearly, Brother Africa, I think that designers are, are very, very, uh, 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 very, very, uh, you know, uh, un at ease because of the fact that African people are beginning to speak out in terms of, you know, the, 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 the genocide is taking place against our Palestinian brothers over there in Palestine. And so for that reason, I, I think designers do what designers do. That is, you know, to attempt to conceal the reality of the situation. And I close with that. And for thank you, Brother Haki. And for the record, when we talk about Zionism, we talk about Zionism in the context of what it is. It's a historical, political movement that came out of the early 19th century out of Europe, using religion or Judaism as a justification to take someone's land that we call Palestinians. That's what we mean by Zionists, and we are not talking about one religious preference, which is one can be a Jew based upon that religion. So we want to make sure we're not um, confused in terms of this question between Zionism, being a Jew, and even not being anti-Semitic. We talk about Theodore Herschel, the father of Zionism, who had a philosophy, he had a movement that came out of Europe in which they can go around the world and take someone else home for their own purposes. And this is what the crux of the issue is all about when we talk about what's going on in Palestine. 
Brother Moses. Well, you know, but one well, you know, brother Africa. Well, you know, brother Africa. They first, they first targeted Uganda as as a site in terms of establishing a so-called Palestinian, so-called Israeli state, so-called Jewish state. So we we got we got vested interest in terms of you know uh, raising the concerns in terms of what's happening to our Palestinian brothers and sisters, because if, if you know wasn't for the fact that the Ugandans uh, who stood up and fought like crazy to prevent the Jewish states from emerging in Uganda, Uganda will be considered a Jewish state today. So clearly, we got vested interest in terms of uh, uh, confronting the Zionists, and, and you're so right. Uh, we do make a distinction between Zionism and people who are legitimately Jewish in terms of their faith, in terms of their belief in terms of their actions. So clearly there's a demarcation between Zionists and people who are in fact who are Jewish, who practice their religion in a dignified, honest and uh, a, a faithful kind of way. And I close with that. And just to add to that point, brother, how can you interpret that aspect of the history? They target themselves African countries. Guinea was one. They look at Argentina, they went all around the world before they came back to the land and the region where they call Palestine, where the Palestinians been living there for years. Well, let's continue to give Moses a chance to take a stab at this question. Brother Moses, one of the narratives when they talk about what's going on in the so-called Zionist of Israel and the West Bank is that they often use the talking point that Israel should have the right to exist. They use the talking point that Hamas over 1,200 of their people, and they use the talking point they use the point, the talking point that all this started on October the seventh. When one look at the history, we know that this conflict started way before October the seventh. This conflict started back as far back when they first, in the early 1900s, when they went to Palestine to take the people land. We also know that if they lost 12,000 people. We also know that they have played a role in killing over 25,000 Palestinians, but they don't talk about that number. So, Brother Moses, when we talk about Zionism and its talking points, what are some of the things that you may have taken from this particular um, documentary? The Unforgettable Clash, Cornell West, Marshall's Kennedy Zionist talking points. Brother Moses, the mic is yours. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Africa. Um... Certainly, we have to recognize what Zionism is. Zionism is the belief in a government of Jews, by Jews, and for Jews. And this government uh, used to exist back in the days of David and Solomon uh, and Saul, the first king of Israel. And so this, you know, but 400 years before Jesus was born, this, this nation had dispersed. And so we have to understand that the that the Jewish state did not exist forever, you know. So we have to distinguish between the Jewish state and the people of who are Jews. There's a difference, and so what what we oppose to is the Jewish state, uh, which is segregation and uh, discrimination and apartheid. And so we have to be clear that we're not against. Jews per se, but we're against Zionists and the Jewish state. And revolution is the solution. We need a one-state solution. Revolution is the solution. And all the separate but equal is not possible. And and all the these other forms of apartheid have been 
been gone through historically, and the only solution is internal contradictions and revolution. And I'll leave it right there. Thank you. And we're bringing Sister Outlaw to let Sister Outlaw speak on this issue. Sister Outlaw, what you took from this documentary and this whole question of Zionism and its attack against Africa, African people. Well, as uh, the other panelists have said, they've talked so much about the search for a Zionist state and making sure that we distinguish the difference between being Jewish and Judaism and Zionism. Um, not only did Uganda fight, to, but South Africa did too. They wanted to turn uh, South Africa into a homeland. This situation right now, um, Hamas, uh, which is not the Palestinian people, on October 7th, apparently, they, they had a terrorist attack and attacked Israel and killed some 1,400 people. But as of today, nearly 25,000 people have been killed in Palestine. 10,000 children. Yes. Yeah. Can I actually hold for one second? I just want to make this announcement to our special guest that's on now. Sister Camille, we're coming to you shortly. So be a little patient. We thank you. We see you. Go ahead, Sister Eleanor. Continue. And uh, in response to the October 7th Hamas attack, Israel, with the full support of the United States and the European and Great Britain, is destroying all the infrastructure in Gaza. I'm talking about homes, buildings, mosques, churches, hospitals, roads. Israel decided to cut off all food, water, medical supplies, and electricity for Gaza except for a minimum allowed allowance uh, through Egypt. And it is moving uh, Palestinians about, telling them to go here and there. And then when they arrive, they are shooting them dead. I have seen so many documentaries in the last week. Uh, it is horrifying. And this genocide, has very has nothing to do with being Jewish. This genocide has nothing to do with anything other than colonialism and being a military colonial uh, colonial settler state. And uh, the reality is, is the genocide is the purpose for killing the children and the women. And this is an outrage. But what happened with the Fox uh, is not a news channel. It's Fox Entertainment. There's no real journalism there. And the, and the uh, person, uh, when talking to uh, Dr. West, uh, brutally attacked the former president of Harvard. And the thing that is interesting about Harvard is the purpose for going to Harvard is so to be around the right people, to get the right job, have the right career, 
and 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 the pursuit of wealth and um that's that's what Harvard is about and in terms of pleasurism i would have to say what happened to the panelist who reviewed her doctorate Moreover, what happened to the provost and the persons at Harvard who reviewed her credentials and her writing? How did this come up so late in the game? This is just a personal attack and a form of humiliation, and uh, it's, it's a form of sexism and racism, the attack on the former president of Harvard. And uh, maybe she didn't speak up forcefully enough or soon enough. But I don't believe this woman is a Zionist. I don't know. But um, I do know that the reality is is that a genocide is uh, going on before our very eyes and that when the case was brought before the Hague, Uh, on the 11th and 12th of January that they used the Nazi Holocaust as an example of what the Palestinians were experiencing. A Holocaust or genocide, wherever it is, it's just that a genocide. It doesn't matter who the people are. It's just that we are watching a Palestinian genocide. And the and it is important for it to stop, for there to be a ceasefire, to stop murdering the Palestinian people, stop the annihilation of the Palestinian people. We have no right to wipe any group or race or nation off the planet. And uh, he brought up the Nagasaki Hiroshima, the host of the the show. Well, that wasn't something we need to emulate. That was something we should remind ourselves every December never to do again as human beings. All right. Thank you, Mm Mm-hmm. You're welcome. Well, since we got 30 seconds, you can close out your statement, but we have our guests waiting. We won't move on to our guests, but close out your statement, my sister. Yes. So the point is is that uh, they're, 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 we uh, need to face that the U.S. the U.S. is promoting this kind of uh, divide. If you ask the average child about uh, who the Palestinians are or what's going on, no one knows. No one, the ordinary American, or uh, in my experience, uh, has no idea about Israel and the establishment of Israel, and they don't know anything about who the Palestinians are. They don't know uh, where they come from, and they don't know how they live, what they believe, and they don't want, uh, don't seem to realize that they have no rights, no voting rights, that they are so restricted. That you, that, you got to stop. 
we're about to stop it right there since I don't know we're about to move on. We just wanted to highlight this particular issue to our listening audience to let Africans know that if you are not organized, you will not defeat an organized force. The forces of Zionism are very organized. They are moving. And one of the items on the agenda is to eradicate Africa, African people. You better get on board and you don't. Africa, African people must unite. Zionism is in force. The humanity must find a way to put an end to it. So we just want to highlight that issue, make people aware of it. And with their consciousness, I think we'll create the other bases in which they can address this particular issue. Right now, we're going to go to our special guest who's been waiting so patiently. And this subject sort of tied to what we've been discussing. We're going to discuss this issue of human rights, human rights and power. With us, we have a human rights activist and an organizer for Alliance of Global Justice, Sister Camille Landry. She can talk to us a little something about human rights, what it is, and to my sister Camille, I'd like to welcome you to this program, and my first question to you, I would like to have you give us a background of what is human rights, and if you don't have power, what does that mean to you when it relates to your human rights? Sister Camille, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Thank you very much, Brother Africa. Thank you for having me on to discuss this vital topic. Thank you for all the brilliant remarks that I've heard during the time that I've been listening in on the show. And thank you all for your dedication to liberation and to universal human rights. Ashe. Let me say that the history of the struggle for human rights is a very old one. It is really just about as old as humanity itself. It is enshrined in the indigenous values, by which I mean the original values of virtually all of the people on the planet prior to colonialism, capitalism, feudalism, and other such arrangements, to say that people have a universal right to certain, uh, to certain human rights, the rights to life, the rights to um, have food, clothing, and shelter, and those kinds of things. These ideas existed in society long, long before the United Nations came into being at the close of the Second World War and in 1948 created a universal declaration of human rights. It was documented by the United States in December of 1948 um, in large part in response to the barbarism of actions during the war. Now, the first thing that comes to mind is the, Israel, the, the Jewish Holocaust. But during that same period, there were plenty of other, there was a myriad of other violations of human rights, um, including many carried out by the United States and its allies. I heard someone mention, uh, mention a moment ago Hiroshima and Nagasaki. If that is not a violation of human rights, I don't know what is. So it's important to realize that these are not Western notions. Human rights are not some lofty ideal that is only realized under the auspices of a government like that of the USA. I want, to, I want to review very quickly what human rights are, and then I want to talk about 
about an, a black radical interpretation of human rights, which is anti-neoliberal, okay? So 1948, the UN uh, comes up with these 30 human rights. Now, human rights are defined as rights that you have just by virtue of being human. They're not tied to your national origin. They're not tied to your ethnicity. They're not tied to your gender. They're not tied to any other. Um, they're not tied to civil rights. You have a civil right to vote. You have a civil right to drive a car, for instance. But we don't let three-year-olds vote, and we don't give the car keys to 10-year-olds. Good and abiding reasons for doing that, even though civil rights are often weaponized against minorities, against people who, who the government wants to repress. And all you all know that story very thoroughly. But human rights are different because you have a human right as soon as you start to breathe air. And those basic human rights are the fact that all humans are born free and equal, and everyone is equal regardless of issues like race, gender, language, religion, politics, or nationality. You have the right to life and to live in freedom and safety and to be free from slavery. Hmm, that's an interesting one. To be free from the right, uh, uh, right to be free from torture and to be recognized equally before the law to seek justice if your rights are violated, and to have the freedom from arbitrary arrest or detention or exile, right to a fair trial, to be presumed innocent until proven guilty, the right to privacy and freedom from attacks on your person, the right to freedom of movement and to be free to leave and return to your own company, uh, country, the right to seek asylum from persecution, the right to a nationality, the right to marry and have a family, the right to own property, uh, the freedom of speech and thought and religion. And it goes on, and, and, and there are a total of 30 of them. Now, if you think back historically to where the USA was at in December of 1948, uh, some of y'all were alive. Um, did you have those rights? Parents have those rights. And so when you look at the fact that the United States was an apartheid government in 1948, and many would argue that it still is in many ways, you can understand why the United States is almost alone in the world in refusing to ratify this universal declaration of human rights. Okay? Irony of ironies. So... I want to, to segue to an understanding of how the United States has and continues to weaponize concepts of human rights against liberation, and liberation movements and free governments that are governments of and by the people. And that's a really important concept because it governs the way the, Un the United States moves in international circles, and it governs the narrative that the United States uses and how it has weaponized the concept of human rights against our people. I want to throw in a quote by none other than the great philosopher Franz Fanon. He said, the West fiction of human rights has been weaponized by neoliberals to rationalize naked imperialist interventions. But if human rights are to have any relevance for the oppressed, 
they must be decolonized and given meaning by the oppressed themselves. We have to have a people-centered human rights, totally different from the human rights as declared by the UN. Now, what does that mean? When you when you look at again the origin of the of the UN Declaration of Human Rights, um, you can very cl- clearly see that Black, Brown, and Indigenous people were being victimized by the very same people who were declaring, you know, flying this flag of human rights. So much so that one of the things that happened, <clears throat> one of the things that happened. In 1948 is that, again, some of our greatest minds, Dr. W.E.B. Dubois, um, Claudia Jones, Harry Haywood, and Paul Robeson in 1951 submitted a petition to the United Nations signed by dozens of other notable people. They filed it simultaneously in Paris, where the UN was meeting, and in New York. And that petition declared we declare genocide. They indicted the United States as carrying out genocide, actual genocide, um, against the Negro people in 1951. Now you can imagine about how, how, much, um, how much play that got in the United States, but the UN did hear it. The United States has veto power over the UN Security Council and many other United Nations functions. And so despite the fact that Robeson and his colleagues and his cohorts presented solid information of genocide by the United States against its own black citizens, the United States was able to suppress this. Nevertheless, the evidence is out there, and it was recognized and it was discussed by many other nations in the world, by the world of nations, and demands were made that the United States cease its apartheid practices, its genocidal practices against its own citizens. Well, you also know from personal experience about how much much play that got in this country. But the data is there, okay? So fast forward a little bit, just a little bit, And consider how the United States talks about human rights and how it weaponizes it, the concept of human rights, against people's struggle for liberation. Think about Cuba. Now, the Cuban Revolution shook the heck out of the United States. If you study that history or if you have lived through that history, you know that literally mass hysteria abounded within this country when the United States and Cuba and the Soviet Union ultimately went head-to-head over what they termed to be the Cuban Missile Crisis. But the Cuban Missile Crisis existed because when Fidel Castro and his his, his band of revolutionary people demanding an end to the neocolonization of the Cuban nation and the Cuban people, the neoliberal exploitation of the Cuban people, where African people in Cuba 
were in a position no better than slavery and where the apartheid government and policies of the nation of Cuba were such that even the existing counter-revolutionary president, Juan Batista, who was an African man, could not walk up the front steps of a downtown uh, hotel in Havana but had to go through the colored entrance. The president of the United States, I mean of Cuba, under the United States supported government. Okay, so Cuba was a colony. Cuba was Cuba existed uh, as a party site for rich Americans and the American mafia, which has a sick and interesting con- um, uh, uh, arrangement with the U.S. government in many ways. That's a subject for another conversation, though. And it's a sugarcane plantation. Just just a quick aside, sugar as a commodity is one of the main drivers of colonialism. Europeans didn't have sugar. You know, you could go steal some honey from the bees, but that's about all you could do. Uh, you could pick an apple and chew on it if you wanted sugar. But when they discovered sugar cane in, in the Western Hemisphere, they lost their minds. We got to have sugar. And it became a valuable commodity and was one of the drivers of colonialism. So that is just another example, by the way, of how capitalism kills but I'm going to try not to not to diverge too much from my main point here. I tend to wander a little bit. Y'all have to forgive me. But when you look at the understanding, the United States' response to Cuba after the Cuban Revolution, it was frightening as heck to the United States. It was frightening because the notion that a mere 50 miles off the coast of the United States a nation of people could come together in much the same way that the people of Haiti came together a hundred and some odd years prior and say, we will be free. We will not be subject to your economic and uh, personal and, and political um, colonization and oppression. We're going to do this our way. We're going to kick out these corporations that have been, that have been stealing the profits stealing the wealth of our nation for generation upon generation, and that the wealth of this tiny little island nation is all going to go toward the good of its people and to hell with capitalism. There are few scarier things that you can say, and it is guaranteed to get a millet, the strongest possible military, economic, and other kind of aggression from the United States. By the way, it's not incidental or accidental that the countries that are attacked the hardest by the United States are often former allies. Saddam Hussein was a former ally, and at one point so was Muammar Gaddafi. Okay? There are few things more dangerous. Look at what's happening in Colombia right now. Few things more dangerous than to be a former ally of the United States, which usually means bought and sold. You know, I'm, t- I'm, talking about, I'm talking about the global south um, and the western hemisphere. Being bought and sold by the United States is a cozy little position until they want what you got or you do something that pisses them off, and they're going to try to wipe you off the face of the earth one way or the other. That happened to Cuba. The United States attacked Cuba in, in the Bay of Pigs invasion and, and as well as attacking them economically. The Soviet Union responded you know, by putting nuclear missiles in Cuba and saying, you can, you can attack Cuba if you want to, but Cuba's got something for you, boy. 
and it brought the world to the brink of thermonuclear warfare. The United States uses this concept when the United States is saying this is why we have to threaten Cuba, this is why we have to do away with this, is number one, you can't do anything that threatens the United States and you can't do anything that threatens capitalism, but also we're going to use this, we're going to weaponize this concept of human rights and say, oh, Cuba, you're not having free and fair elections. Oh, Cuba, you're not a democracy. Will you tell me how much of a democracy that this land is right now, carrying out genocide against the Palestinian people, supporting the apartheid state of Israel, which I talked about a few minutes ago, and committing genocide still to this day upon its own black, brown, indigenous citizens, people within this country born and raised here, in addition to the human rights offenses that it wreaks upon all other people in especially the people of the global Southland, okay? So looking at the United States' interpretation of human rights, you can see how the emphasis is placed on civil and political human rights, which are important. The right to vote is important. These kinds of things are important. But you tell me how much of a right to vote we have right now when we're running up on a national election, when our choices are between Tweedledum and Tweedledee, you know, a monster with, with actual horns in the form of Donald Trump who openly states, you know, reveals that he is a racist, he is an, an outright fascist. And then we have the warm, fuzzy Joe Biden kind of fascism that supports genocide of the Palestinian people, but, you know, babies don't run screaming from him. You tell me that this election that we're about to have in November will be a free and fair and open election, and I'll eat my hat, okay? I know that, you know that, and so do the people who are purveying this. Nonetheless, they are weaponizing it against other governments. The idea that Western capitalists and colonial states, neocolonial states, are defenders of human rights uh, strikes many people in the global south as either delusional or an affirmation in the eyes of the West that they are not human. Either if you're if you're sitting in Cuba or Venezuela or Nicaragua or Colombia or Panama or any you know or any of the place of the nations of the Caribbean and you're looking at the United States with its massive human rights violations and them saying, yeah, this is the way people ought to live, you have to recognize that the United States is either totally delusional, the United States has declared through their behavior that you, inhabiting a black, a brown, an indigenous body, any kind of non-white, non-cis, heterosexual, middle-class, preferably male body, are not fully human. And that whatever human rights that the United States reserves for itself is fictitious and or delusional, and it's also going to be used as a weapon against you. So it's turned into a 40 or 50 year long onslaught of, of neoliberal um, warfare that began 
in the 1970s and then moved on into northern economies. Because one thing you got to say about capitalists is that they really, at the bottom, at the bottom line, don't give a hoot who you are. Exploited if you live within the U.S., if you're a U.S. citizen, if that works, just as much as somebody can be exploited if they live in Venezuela, if they live in Haiti, if they live in Senegal, if they live in, in, in Somalia, if they live in Eritrea, you name it, you know, the United States is a universal destroyer of human rights. So fast forward to 2020 and the economic and uh, social crisis of the COVID pandemic did something. For one thing, it shone a bright light on the lie that the United States is the bastion of human rights. Because we saw that in the United States, the massive number of deaths, the massive amount of hunger and homelessness and unemployment, unnecessary deaths and and sickness with a disproportionate rate of that following, falling upon people of color and poor people in the United States was there for the whole world to see. The whole world could see like a tiny, how a tiny nation like, like Nicaragua or, or Cuba with few resources and under relentless economic and even military attack through sanctions and embargoes by the United States far better job of taking care of their citizens and reducing unnecessary deaths and unnecessary suffering during COVID, where the great Satan itself was having to bring in refrigerated trucks uh, to line the streets of New York City, to line the streets of Boston, of Seattle, of San Francisco, of Houston and New Orleans and many other places in the United States with people in body bags, you know, that so many people that, that, that they were burying people in mass graves. This illuminated in a way that has seldom been illuminated how the United States is, um, is not a bastion of human rights, but rather one of the greatest defenders, offenders against human rights right in this own nation. So we, we go forward and we see how both before the pandemic and after it, the United States also uses human rights using the world's largest military machine. And the enormous wealth of this country, wealth that ought to go to providing health care, universal health care, which the U.S. doesn't have and ranks dead last among so-called um, uh, developed nations in, in health, in longevity, um, and wellness for its people. We don't. Our, our kids graduate from high school and can't read at a fourth grade level. Old people eat cat food because uh, they cut food stamps even from the elderly who've worked and paid taxes for for a lifetime. You know this story. You know how the United States treats its own people and how the United States uses its wealth, uses its political and economic might to run bully over the rest of the world and to make sure that capitalism and neoliberalism are not just the laws of this land, but the laws of the planet. And let me tell you, my people, capitalism kills. Capitalism always kills because capitalism
capitalism's purpose is to take money from the 99% of the people in the world and funnel it to the 1% that truly control not only this government, but every other government. An interesting thing happened um, in 2021 um, in New York City that I happened to be a witness to. An organization called Spirit of Mandela convened an international tribunal on human rights abuses against black, brown, and indigenous people in October. They held this tribunal at the Malcolm X uh, and Betty Shabazz Memorial, the uh, former Audubon Ballroom, the place where Brother Malcolm was gunned down by forces of oppression. And they called this tribunal, We Still charge genocide. They convene a panel of jurists, international human rights experts, that heard testimony emphasizing the millions upon millions of indigenous and African people murdered, disappeared, exterminated over a period from 1492 up to this very day. They argued that the wrongs that killed these people and caused suffering have been historic, that they were deliberate, that they included colonialization, racism, militarism, imperialism, um, criminalization, patriarchy, neoliberalism, and internal colonialism as part of the the progress that manifested itself at that time in not only the deaths from COVID, also um, medical apartheid, chemical warfare, environmental violation, uh, violence, and environmental racism. You know, it's very interesting. That virtually, I, I live in a, in a zip code that, uh, in Oklahoma City where virtually every little kid that goes to school carries an asthma inhaler. Do you think just because they live in this zip code they naturally are prey to asthma? Or is it because of environmental racism that pollutes the inner city community in which I and, and, and thousands of other people who look like me dwell, and it's easier to pollute this community and let our children suffer from asthma than it is to um, stop people from, stop, stop corporations from fouling the very planet that we live on. So the Spirit of Mandela's tribunal found the U.S. guilty, just as Paul Robeson's tribunal in 1951 found the United States guilty. And they presented this, uh, these findings to the United Nations, and they were accepted by the United Nations and filed as evidence and are on file with the U.N. now. But, of course, again, because of the power of the United States, they were never heard in open discussion by the U.N., Surprise, surprise, surprise. We move forward. I, you all were talking the genocide of the Palestinian people. I want to throw out here the very importance of the fact that this genocide, while being something that must be stopped immediately by any means necessary, is only the tip of the human rights violations that have been going on against the Palestinian people, actually since, since um, 
World War One, the Balfour Declaration, and I think that was um, uh, 1919, um, if, if memory, or 1917. I can't quite remember my history. But this has been going on for a long time. The apartheid government that uh, the apartheid uh, uh, provisions that the state of Israel has inflicted upon the Palestinian people are on the level of the situation in South Africa with which you are all quite familiar, I'm sure. Do you know that in the state of Israel today, in the places where they haven't managed to run Palestinian people out of the white part of Israel, um, that there are people who own property but can't walk through their front doors, have to go through their back door, because their house faces onto a part of the city where Palestinians may not walk. They have to go out their back door and through a little alleyway or something so that they can walk through the Palestinian section of town. Palestinians have to carry identification in the same way that African people, black African people had to carry it in South Africa and in, uh, in, in the former nation of Rhodesia and those other parts of the world that were kind of apartheid um, back just a couple of decades ago. Um, you have to carry your identification, and if you're caught being someplace you're not supposed to be, you can be thrown into prison and might not ever see the light of day again. This is a nation where if a 12-year-old boy throws a rock at Israeli soldiers who might have beaten his mother bloody for being on the wrong state or the crime of selling apples in the street so that she could feed her, her children, and if he throws a rock at them, that child is liable to be shot. And if he's not shot, he will get the beat down and be thrown into a prison with adults. Israel is imprisoning young children. Children who haven't even reached puberty yet are under lock and key in Israeli hellhole jails right now. And then they use the concept of human rights, of the, inner, of the inalienable right to life, to say that those sisters and brothers who came over that wall of Gaza, which was an open-air concentration camp, the most crowded place on the face of the planet, more people, um, over 7 million people crammed into a place no larger than the District of Columbia with razor wire and concrete walls and automated machine guns and drones on top of them, where Israelis only allowed a certain amount of fresh water and food and medical supplies. This was before October 7th, my, my people. Only allowed a small number. They embargoed food coming in. You keep people hungry, they can't rise up. And when those people rose up anyway and attacked their oppressors the way they had been attacked by others, for decade upon decade, generation upon generation, then the concepts of human rights were used to condemn not only the Palestinian people who only wanted their own freedom and personhood, but are being used to quell dissent against you and me and anybody else who says, wait one cotton picking minute, this is wrong. The killing of Palestinian civilians is genocide, the treatment of Palestinian people in their own land is apartheid. This is what oppression looks like. And, hey, by the way, about $97 billion, and these are the, these are the monies that we can track. 
there's a lot of dark money that, that goes through uh, and by the United States. Over $97 million just in the past 10 or 11 years of your tax dollars have gone to the state of Israel to help them wreak this oppression upon the Palestinian people. And what do they get in return, you might ask? Let me tell you this. Do you know that every major city in the United States force that has been trained directly by the state of Israel? The United States exports many things. One, they export a lot of black culture. You see people all over the world listening to black hip-hop music. It's one of the ways in which, in, in, in which capitalism oppresses us. But another major thing the U.S. exports is prison imperialism. The U.S. model of incarceration, of over-incarceration, using incarceration as the new Jim Crow in the United States, has been exported by the United States to many other nations, many nations in Africa, many nations in Central America, many Guatemala right now, Honduras and prior to the election of the latest president, Colombia, Peru, Argentina, uh, and attempts to do it in Brazil. Um, this prison imperialism to, 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 to train people uh, and then we've got the, the, the School of the Americas, um, formerly called, where people from police and military forces were brought to the U.S. state of Georgia and trained how to suppress uprisings in their own nation. Many of these trainings were conducted by the state of Israel to the point that the, um, the, the U.S. Association of Chiefs of Police and sheriffs, and I'm misquoting that name, but that's basically what it is, says that every major U.S. city has been trained by Israeli Defense Force. So during the George Floyd uprisings, um, you know, what I'm calling the George Floyd uprisings of a couple of years ago, when you saw tanks and militarized vehicles running down the streets of every city in this nation, those people were trained by the Israeli Defense Force, the Israeli Army. When that fucker, excuse me, I don't have a better word for it, put his knee on the neck of George Floyd on camera, he was executing a maneuver that was literally taught to the police of Minneapolis, Minnesota, by the Israeli Defense Force. So the United States, in weaponizing this conversation about human rights and the concepts of human rights has utilized Israel by spending millions of dollars and turned Israel into a literal police force or army of repression. When the United States needs dirty work done against some other nation, it's frequently the state of Israel that carries that out. But then we haven't returned on campuses, in cities, in, in every within the United States now, if you accuse Israel of crimes of oppression against the people of Palestine, of the crime of genocide, you can lose your job. In 21, I believe, state governments of the United States right now, including the state in which I live, 
Brother Africa, you live in Virginia. That law is on the, on the books in the state of Virginia and in 20-some-odd in others. It is against the law. You cannot have um, a, a fiduciary relationship with the state. You can't do business with the state you live in if you don't sign a contract that says you will not invest or you will not engage in boycotts or divestments against Israel, to punish Israel economically for their oppression of the Palestinian people or other things they do. So I live in Oklahoma, and I have a bookstore, and we do, we do literacy training for children. We, we tutor children, and we do that kind of stuff. But I can't have a contract with the states that would give me a pittance to help our children learn to read, because they don't learn how to read while they're in school, because our schools are crappy, and we don't even have certified teachers. And why? because all of our money is going for things like being the big bully of the world, the world's greatest purveyor of human rights offenses. They, but they won't pay me unless I sign that document to say that I won't try to boycott Israel because Israel is a human rights abuser. Okay, So this, this whole concept of human rights has, has been, has been um, co-opted and used and weaponized to maintain capitalism, to maintain neoliberalist policies, to maintain oppression. And that's where we find ourselves today. And so you might ask yourself, what is, you know, what are we going to do about this? Well, Sister Camille, I went for a while. Yes, sir. Sister Camille, let's take a break right now. We're going to have to take a quick break and when we come back. We will address that question and bring in our panelists who might have some comments or thoughts so far on the subject in human rights and power. So at I this sure point will. in time, we're going to take a station break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Sister Camille Laundry. She's an advocate on human rights, and we will continue the discussion. You're listening to Brother Africa and Africa on the Move. I need 
organization Black Workers for Justice. Um, we came in from Raleigh, North Carolina, from Jacksonville, North Carolina, from Durham, um, and we're here because we support and we are part of the labor movement, but also part of the environmental justice movement, too. We are with UE150, the North Carolina Public Service Workers Union, local of the United Electrical, Radio, and Machine Workers of America. 
in our communities. We fight on the job, but we also see the need to fight in our communities. There is no distance between the two. If we want justice on our jobs, we have to fight for justice in our communities. A lot of our communities face um, environmental hazards. Uh, some of us come from communities that have super fun sites in the middle of them. Some of us are part of organizations, environmental organizations that fight against coal ash ponds, that fight, that are currently fighting against the um, Atlantic Coast Pipeline, which will come through predominantly of colors, communities of color, black and Native American communities. Um, so we're fighting against that. We're fighting against hog farms, uh, proliferation in North Carolina, and the dumping in our streams from being contaminated from hog farms. So we see the intersections between workers being poisoned on the job and workers being poisoned in our communities. We want to close with a song. So we wrote a song, Fruit of Labor wrote a song uh, about water contamination based upon struggles that were going on in North Carolina. So we're going to do a little bit of it right now. Okay. It's called Justice Flowing Down Like Water. Family drank from a deep clear well to the hearts and moved underground. Now the only story left to tell is innocence lost in community action. Justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Little girl don't read so well, there's a lot that she'll never see. Some say it's the mercury in the fish of mama heat. Power plants causing you and me. Justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Clean water, clean water safe for all. We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Moon. Before we took our Revolutionary Culture break, you can listen to Sister Camille Landry, who is a activist, a human rights activist and an organizer on the Alliance for Global Justice. And right before we took our break, Sister Camille, you had a question or something that you want to raise, and once you have raised that, I would like to bring in our political panelists and analysts who might have a question or would like to make a have a response to this issue of human rights and its question of power. So Camille, we'll hand the mic back over to you. Thank you so much, Brother Africa. Let me say that um, in, in much more eloquent terms than I've been able to use, our Brother Peter Tosh and the Sisters and Brothers of uh, North Carolina talking about justice flowing down like water firmly, clearly explained what the issues are. Human rights definitely include my right to have whatever seat on the bus that I wish to have. Thank you, Rosa Parks and and the people of, of Montgomery. But the more important thing is human rights must be people-centered. You can't, it doesn't do you any good to have the right to vote, which we don't have, by the way, if your belly is empty. It doesn't, I live in a, in a neighborhood where you literally where over 87% of the children who attend the local high school and all its feeder schools 
over 87% of those babies have one or both parents who either was, has been, or is incarcerated or on paper. Virtually 100% of the youth in my zip code, 73111, have a parent who has been put behind bars, mostly for the crime of being black and poor and doing what you got to do to survive, for other things that are militarized, how human rights have been militarized against the people of this nation and the people of other nations. And so there are, there are things to be done about it, but in the interest of brevity, human rights can, and the notion of human rights, the concept of human rights can be a powerful organizing and educating tool for people. It bypasses really the issue of race and gender and class and all of the other things that our enemies are using to drive a wedge between the working class and the poor people of this nation and realization of our universal human rights. Okay, if you can keep people arguing about nonsense, then they're not focused on the fact that they are being robbed blind and that these wedge issues are used as a way of maintaining power for the few and lack of power for the many. So talk about human rights and talk about oppression from the standpoint of human rights. Last, but certainly not least, Alliance for Global Justice is forming an international coalition, but particularly a U.S.-based coalition to demand the institution of a federal office of human rights. Now, is that going to stop the U.S. from being the world's largest purveyor of oppression? No, we're not stupid. But what we do need is documentation. What we do need is acknowledgement of the uh, the horrific human rights violations in and by the United States. So that being done, education and is 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 paramount to organizing. Education is paramount to true activism. So that is a, a campaign we're going to be launching soon, and I'll be able to explain some of the details of it at a later date. So um, if I were going to throw the, 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 the conversation back to you all, because I've talked really more than I plan to, you've got a lot of wisdom, a lot of experience that I need to hear. I'd like to know what your experience of human rights violations has been, whether they were things directly foisted upon you or, or someone you know, or whether you're talking about historical or more global kind of kind of offense. What do you all know about this, and what would you like to share? Okay, and thank you again. Time, okay, this point in time, we're going to open up to our pivotal panel analysts, and you, the listening audience, if you would like to uh, make any comments concerning this issue of human rights and power, or anything that was just articulated. By Sister Camille, please call in at 323-679-0841, hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. So at this point in time, Brother Anthony, you will respond to a question and any other issues you would like to add to the subject matter. Brother Anthony, we will turn the mic over to you. Thanks, uh, Brother Africa. Uh, thanks, Sister Camille. Uh, your presentation was very informative in terms of addressing uh, the human rights uh, issue and uh, and also the pattern uh, that emerges when we analyze uh, 
uh, the struggle for human rights and also the forces of oppression that uh, that maintain uh, th- uh, through su- uh, suppression of information primarily, uh, but also uh, there's a, a pattern emerging of how uh, different countries that are violators of human rights share information with each other. Uh, that mm-hmm. was uh, a, a takeaway I got, I got from that. Um, let's see, uh, and I want to include Australia, New Zealand, and Hawaii. We didn't talk about those tonight, but uh, our brothers and sisters are are are, are facing oppression there too. So uh, you know, uh, you know, and uh, also uh, the fact that um, that the U uh, that the U.S. gives so much aid to Israel shows that they that there is uh, a, a common uh, a communication mechanism between. Uh, these oppressive forces and settler colonialism, and um, and uh, we have to organize in order to more effectively fight against that. And um, and I thought your uh, your your insight was very helpful in that regard. And um, you know, and uh, we have to organize uh to fight against uh all the forces of oppression that are uh that are uh that keep us down because they communicate with each other and they change strategy and tactics from time to time so we have to fight and uh we have to get better organized than we have been Thank you, brother. For sure. Next, we'll turn the mic over to Brother Hakeem. The mic is yours. Yes. Um, yes. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay. Listen. Yes, we can. Yes, but to re- respond to the sister question, uh, you know, I really have nothing to add in terms of the issues confronting the African community. Sister talking about the environmental issues impacting the community. The debilitating impact of poverty and, of course, the high incarceration rate as pertains to African people. So that's pretty much the same. It's pretty much universal, and it's, and it's, and it's really uh, multiplied, you know, in Virginia. So <laughs> this is where it all started. But anyway, I got two quick questions for the sister uh, to answer. The first one is this. Uh, now, the, now, one of the things I'm happy to hear the sister talk about the fact that historically, when you look in terms of human human society, uh, there was an awareness in terms of, you know, human need. In fact, prior to feudalism or capitalism, the notion in terms of treating people less than, 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 than human uh, was unheard of. So essentially what I wanted to address this whole question around, you know, um, societal hierarchy. In, in the context of a unit society, when we talk about the horizontal versus vertical, could you talk a little bit about in terms of how those, how those structures affect uh, people, you know, in these capitalist societies, and what would you do in terms of um, uh, changing that structure to make it much more humane? 
Well, that's that's the the whole thing in a nutshell right there. And and you have to understand that you're pushing against a huge multinational um, with arms, so many arms it would make an octopus look like it has few arms. Uh, that touches on every aspect of our lives in this nation and otherwise. But I, I have a friend, he's an indigenous man, a member of the Muscogee Creek Nation here in Oklahoma, who has, has published a document that compares capitalist values to indigenous values, okay? And one of the, the lie to is people, you'll say, well, these things shouldn't happen, and a lot of people will come back at you and say, but that's just the way they always are. Women have always been lesser than men. Uh, uh, LGBTQ people have always been persecuted because God says it's wrong. Um, there's got to be a top dog and there got to be little dogs. Everybody can't be running things. This is just the way it is. So one of the things that I had hoped to have enough talk, time to talk about tonight is the theory, the concept of intersectionality that shows how some, a, a concept uh, developed, by the way, by black women in the United States um, fighting the oppression, the peculiar misogyny, misogynoir against our sisters. But that, that concept of intersectionality says you have to recognize that oppression happens we're not single-issue people, and there's no such thing as single-issue oppression. So when you're, when you're analyzing this and when you're talking to people about this, you have to be able to offer concrete examples of how different forms of oppression combine to be majorly oppressive. And you've got to be able to help people understand that even in their own experience, that capitalist and neoliberalist notions are not the way we truly in our hearts, truly at the bone, believe things should go, and they're not the way we've done them before. When slavery, when chattel slavery ended in the United States, one of the first things that African people did was band together communally, not to try to get rich individually, although some did, but band together as a community to teach ourselves how to read, to teach ourselves how to how to um, how to be free, you know. We we establish schools, not just schools like the Tuskegee Institute and so forth, but schools where my my great grandmother told stories of people just sitting under the tree, where the one girl who had been able to learn how to read because she was really Massa's daughter, you know, and was allowed to sit with her white half siblings to learn to read, where she sat down and said, "Come on, y'all, gather around this tree." which could have gotten her whipped or killed prior to emancipation. But we did this. One of, the, one of the major things that the nation of Cuba did after the revolution, one of Fidel's first moves, and you all probably know this history, was to tell the young women of Cuba, leave your classrooms, the ones who were fortunate enough to be in a classroom and not chopping cane. Go back to your home communities and teach people how to read. We've been doing this. We've been taking care of each other. You know, your grandmother, when the neighbor was sick, cooked up a pot of beans and took it to the neighbor's house. Communalism is the way that our cultures have lived since the dawn of time. And we have to use that concept of our history and our culture, our rich culture and history, to say capitalism is a lie. Let us really enforce the concept of human rights 
by making sure that people's bellies are fed, people have health care, people have education, people have housing, people have fundamental human rights. And that right does not include the right to exploit the labor of other people for your individual wealth and pleasure. I hope okay, I've answered your question. question. Second question. Now, you know, that's a strong relation, correlation between neoliberalism and, and uh, a relationship to free market uh, capitalism. Uh, yes, neoliberalism and, and free market capitalism go hand in hand. But there is also a supposition that says that in terms of free market capitalism that everything is for sale. Now, given that supposition uh, and given the history of, of, you know, using African people for cheap labor here in the United States, can the system really value African lives? Um, I learned something yesterday. Uh, by the way, Alliance for Global Justice has the Lucy Parsons. Lucy Parsons was a black revolutionary woman at the turn of the last century. But Lucy Parsons Popular Human Rights School, of which I am the coordinator. And uh, we have classes that are going on now. You can join them, by the way. And uh, one of our presenters yesterday taught me something that I didn't know. The name proletariat, which Marx defined as, as working class people, the people who create all, all the wealth in the world, comes from a Latin root that means your children. Because as people, uh, as people who are, are, are not the landowning and the capitalist class across history, the only thing that you had to give to, your, to, to the state in the form of taxation was your children, either directly, you know, they can be conscripted into the army, or indirectly as their labor goes to enrich others. This is, a, this is pre-capitalism as we know it today, but it is actually the literal source of the word proletariat, and it has always been a highly racialized concept. Colonialism could not have existed without racism and white supremacy that said it is okay, Jesus ain't going to get us for hours about the role of, of, of religion in this, but Jesus isn't going to condemn us to hell if we're only exploiting these people who have dark skins. So in answer to your question of whether we can ever overcome racism alone as as a means of exploitation, the answer is, I don't know, but I'm going to die on that hill, number one. <laughs> but number two, the, it underlies, uh, it, it underscores the importance of a solid analysis that recognizes the role of capitalism, that recognizes the role of caste and class, and that above all else, recognizes that capitalism kills and that these other things that we struggle against, like racism, like sexism, like other forms of domination and oppression, all flow from that one fount, that fount of capitalism and the white supremacy and the other forms of oppression that flow from it. So the, without the proper analysis, you can't even see what you're fighting. You don't know who the enemy is. Okay, thank you. Thank, thank you very next, much for your, for your comments, brother. Next, we'll make a transition, Brother Moses. Question, comments. The mic is yours, Brother Moses. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa. 
And certainly I want to give greetings to Sister Camille. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on, uh, hear your voice and uh, hear your analysis and to know that the depth of experience that you have is being used for the good of humanity. And so, you know, it's it's a pleasure to, to be in the same conversation with you. And um, I just I just think you know I just want to encourage you to keep on keeping on and and uh, doing that which is just I hope that the repressive state and uh, which we are faced with with the ban on the credit cards and different donations to Alliance for Global Justice I hope that we can somehow get this lifted but meanwhile we have to unite and. Uh, do everything we can to support the Alliance for Global Justice. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. We make our transition to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, the mic is yours. Uh, thank you, uh, uh, Sister Camille. I want to tell you this has been very enlightening and, and a beautiful storyteller to give the listening audience a background on both the uh, development of the UN and the structure of, uh, of uh, human rights, the fact that water is a human right, and to distinguish or distinguishing the difference between human rights and civil rights. But we can't have civil, uh, human rights when we don't even have civil rights. Um, I'd just like to say thank you. That's my only comment. Thank you, Sister Camille. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. Sister Camille, I have a question for you. As we talk about this question of human rights and the issue of power, what's the relevance of the people having human rights? Brother Lee, can you repeat that? What's the relevance to talk about human rights among the people if they are a powerless people? They don't have power. Does human rights really exist in a people's life if they don't have the power to enforce it or to protect it? Well, what the relevance is, what the relevance is, is that you have to change the narrative. We see that in all of these struggles we're talking about. We see it in the struggle for the, the end of genocide in Palestine. We're calling it genocide. Israel and the United States are calling it self-defense. You've got, to, you've got to help people understand that it is, in fact, genocide. And when it comes to human rights, education and, and, and clear analysis, um, honest analysis are the key to organizing. Organize for the civil rights um, uh, that we gained in the 60s had we not had the, an understanding and analysis of the fact that we have been denied civil rights. We had to not only come to that conclusion ourselves, we had to um, move the rest of the nation, which did hold the power, to the understanding and acceptance of the fact that they had denied those fundamental human rights, uh, those fundamental civil rights, rather, to um, African people. Um, because it's not that folks couldn't see 
they couldn't witness with their own eyes the oppression that black people were facing. Everybody could see it, but they ignored it and just said that this is the status quo. But what it took was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears for people to shine a light on that oppression before we could build the coalitions that enabled us to bring about some minuscule form of of civil rights in this country. Um, but um, who was it? Uh, it, it, it was uh, Frederick Douglass that said, power concedes nothing without demand that never has and it never will. So organize, organize, organize is the story of the day. But by organizing with a clear analysis of what human rights really mean and of the fact that each and every one of us does have the inalienable right to be treated as full free human beings is a starting point. And it is a framework that is based on data, that is based on history, that is based on culture, because again, our fundamental values are those of human rights. And so that's where it comes in as a tool. Sister Camille, what we're gonna do right now, we're gonna take a revolutionary culture break. And when we come back, we'll give you five minutes to give us a summation on your presentation on human rights and power. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the Move. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your rights. Get up, stand up. You can fool some people 
Yeah, dude. 
We welcome you back to Africa on the Moon. That's right. Not yet, Uhuru. We are not yet free. Africans, we are not yet free. Welcome back to Africa on the Moon. We have with us Sister Camille Landry, who is a human rights activist. Uh, she was speaking on the theme, human rights and power. We're going to bring her back and let her have a five-minute summarization, closing out her presentation. Then we'll proceed with our closing remarks with our political analysts and panelists for today's program. This is a two-part series of Africa is fighting on many fronts. So at this point in time, we'd like to let everyone know that you can catch Africa on the Moon every Sunday evening from 7 to basically 10 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can go online as well to hear us by going to Blog Talk Radio and type in Africa on the Moon. And for those who like to show their love and appreciate the work and the information that we bring to you on a weekly basis, you can do that by cash apping us at dollar sign, capital L, small e, small e, small c, small r, small o, small b. It will be greatly appreciated. The wherever there's economic dependency, there can never be no freedom. So we need to support each other. We need to support to help build Africa a move by not only supporting financially, but also share the word, spread this program, and let them know that for the next three, four months, we'd like to increase our listenership to over 100,000 people globally. We can do this with your help. If you'd like to have this program and others, just email us at AfricaOnTheMove2 at gmail.com. So right now, I'm Brother Africa. Let's get back to our special guest today, Sister Camille. Sister Camille, we'll give you five minutes to give us a summarization of your final thoughts on the theme, Human Rights and Power. The mic is yours, Sister Camille. Okay, let me – thank you, Brother Africa. And let me say again, because I say this every time I talk to you, your playlist gives me life. It speaks truth to power, and it, it, it just shines a light on, on the truth that we need to abide by. Um, so thank you for that. It really, it really does far more than just entertain. Something that I need to say, and I'm sure all y'all are in agreement, is that Pan-Africanism as a tool for liberation of the African people is critical. The development of revolutionary socialist unity throughout the African diaspora is key to our liberation, and that especially goes for those of us here in the belly of the beast the United States of America. I want to also say that the recognition of human rights and the meaning of that concept in our struggles for liberation against oppression is a key tool for, for organizing that we would be foolish to ignore. I want to ask you to join us all to join together to demand an end to sanctions, which are a form of economic warfare that has killed millions of people across the globe, where the majority of the nations in the world are subject to some form of sanction or embargo by the United States. And that is a genocidal action in and of itself. I want you to join me in demanding an immediate end to the genocide in Palestine against the Palestinian people, but as well the genocide against other people throughout the world. I want you to join in demanding an end to the proxy wars 
created and utilized by the United States to gain world global hegemony. If you think the war between in Ukraine is anything other than a proxy war on behalf of the United States, you're not paying attention. Okay? Lastly, I want to say that our call, our requirement is to educate, to activate, to organize and resist. And in the words of Mother Africa that we just heard in her beautiful, powerful, inimitable voice, you know, my kids tease me and say, you always get the lyrics wrong. She wasn't just saying we don't have Uhuru or we need Uhuru, but what I heard was rather, look at you, Uhuru. That is our goal. That is our mission. That is our reason for existence. Uhuru. Peace and, and, and love to all of you. Unity and solidarity are the call for the day, for tomorrow and forever. Thank you again for listening to me. Thank you again, Brother Africa, for the opportunity to share what I know and to learn from the powerful, committed people who, who participate in your show. Good night. Sister Camille, Sister Camille, can we get you to give our listening audience information where they can contact you if they would like to bring you into your cities or states, your country, or the work that you're doing? How can they reach out to you? Yes. You can email me at Camille, C-A-M-I-L-L-E, at A-F-G-J. That stands for Alliance for Global Justice, dot org. And I will get back to you. I also invite you. Uh, we're going next week is week three of our current human rights school training. You can go to AFGJ.org, H-R-S, for human rights school, and you can sign up. It is free. It is free of cost. And it is not a horizontal learning environment. It's a vertical one where I learn as much from the people that call themselves my students as I can ever hope to share with them. So I invite all of you beautiful, wise, and, 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 and brilliant people to participate in that. And I, I also neglected to say very quickly, we are creating a database, which you'll find on that same page, afgj.org hrs where we invite people to document human rights abuses, whether you see about it, experience it, or hear about it, or read about it, so that we can begin forming this database, which is a powerful organizing tool. And we have to speak truth to power. So email me at Camille at AFGJ.org. We will continue this conversation, but most of all, we will continue our efforts to create liberation to create universal human rights, to create Uhuru. And we'd like to thank you, Sister Camille, for your contribution to today's program. And we do have a caller. We have called in. We might have a question or comment. We're going to take this caller right now. Caller, your name, your number is 7236-7236. Welcome to Ask All the Your comment or question, please. Yes, caller. Um, Brother Africa, this is Eleanor. I was disconnected. But I did want to thank Sister Camille, and I will do my final comments if you'd like. Um, yes, you uh, This week on Janu- January 26th, India celebrated its uh, Republic Day. That's the day it uh, adopted its constitution as an independent country after 200 years of British colonialism as a sovereign 
socialist, secular, democratic republic uh, committed to justice, equality, and liberty for its people. However, uh, Modi, uh, the current dictator, we're talking about moving towards fascism, instead tried to establish a new Hindu constitution. And uh, he was responsible for dedicating a new Hindu temple on the site of him, where in 1992, I believe, there was a, a battle and the destruction of a mosque that stood on that site where some 2,000 people died. So the whole issue of combating fascism and human rights uh, issues, uh, it's a global issue. And so it wasn't only Bolsonaro in Brazil. We still have Mohi in India, and we still see the U.S. And I was glad that Camille mentioned the fact that the Ukrainian war is a U.S. proxy war against Russia. And also the fact that uh, the U.S. is now backing the Saudis in this war against Yemen. And there are so many complex issues. In the Yemen, no one should be bombing ships. But at the same time, I don't think we should be bombing the citizens of Yemen. So um, thank you so much, and uh, the struggle goes on, and uh, uh, liberation is what it's about, and thank you, Sister Camille, thank you, Brother Africa, thank you, fellow panelists, for a wonderful show. Good night. Thank you, Sister. I'll know for your contribution to today's program, and we'll go to Brother Moses for his final thoughts. Brother Moses, your final thoughts. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa. It's been a wonderful educational show. I think a concrete analysis of concrete conditions is the life and soul of Marxism, and certainly we've done a bunch of um, spotlights on on various problems around the world, and we've shown concretely how they've impacted our lives and what we need to do about them. Uh, certainly, we have to recognize that um, in Israel, the so-called Israel, the two-state solution is no solution, that internal contradictions require revolution is the only solution. You know, separate but equal is not going to work. We've been through all these various formations of political uh, concepts and um only the united front of the working class is going to bring about revolution in within the um, state of Israel. And so we need to work toward that end. And I'll leave it right there. Thank you. And we'd like to thank you again, Brother Moses, for your contribution to today's program. Before I go to Brother Anthony, I would like to make this announcement for those who are listening to this program that if you get a chance, please go and check out the website of the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. They have some interesting and important information as it relates to the lawsuit by the um, constitutional, um, constitutional Rights Organization, Legal Organization, and the National Lawyer Deal and Palestine Legal, where they just 
presenting a a case against the president of the United States and his administration. Check that out. They also have posted the recent court case that South Africa had brought against Israel, and they have a lot of real important information that most of the major media have been blocking out. So if you can, please check out their website by going to www.a-aprp-gc.org. And Brother Anthony, you can say a little bit more about that, but your last, but your final comments for tonight, Brother Anthony. Uh, thank you, Brother Africa, uh, for having me. And thank you to our special guest, uh, Sister Camille. Uh, I, uh, I found her ver- uh, presentation very informative. And, uh, and I think uh, we have to understand that it's important to organize. And also join a political organization that's guided by revolutionary ideology. So we know what to do with the information we get. And uh, also, um, you know, we we need uh, to be better organized. That's the only way we're going to defeat our enemies. Uh the tactics of the of our enemies are are vast and many, but they come down to uh, control of uh, people's resources and land, and so we have to organize uh, like we we never have before. And, uh, you know, and uh, you can join, uh, find out more about the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, by visiting our website, www.a-aprp-gc.org. And you can find out more about the history of our organization and uh, our objective, Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thanks for having me. Good night. Thank you, Brother Andrew, for your contribution as well to today's program. And we'll go to Brother Haki and his final thoughts for tonight. Brother Haki. Well, Brother Africa, I certainly hope this program tonight, uh, as usual, sort of underscore just how insensitive or how indifferent this government is to human life. Uh, you know, recently, the U.S. government halted a a a a, a program, uh, specifically to the offices of to the offices of the uh, the UN. Uh, this program, the UNRWA, which stands for United United Nations Relief and Works Agencies, counsel all services for education. Healthcare and social services, you know, to the Palestinian. Now, and this, these cuts are going to particularly impact the children in Palestine. So, it gives you the, in a level, a sense, in terms of just how indifferent uh, this government is to human life. And I think we fundamentally understand. Whereas, you know, they talk about the 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 the, the insensitivity, you know, uh, or the indifference to human life as it relates to the Palestinians. We should keep in mind that this insensitivity or indifference to human life also extends right here in the United States. Last year, last week, I mentioned the fact that 
out of 15 states, 13 of the poorest states in the union refuse federal aid to feed very hungry children. So we talk about an excess of 8 million hungry children in America in which these people who don't have any sympathy, any compassion whatsoever, and that for them to not to have access to food is not problematic for these people in positions of power. What kind of inhumanity, what kind of in, in, in insanity uh, exists in the society? I think at some point we have to realize that this society is seriously sick. And if we don't realize that, then we better realize that because the bottom line is that these injustices, those indifference to humanity, it's not going to decrease. As a matter of fact, it's going to increase. It's only up. It's only it's only uptake. Also, I think when we talk about the fact that you got 21, you know, since you know 2020, 21 million people, uh, or jobs have disappeared. Whereas that's very profitable for corporations, it does nothing for the masses of people in society who need jobs, who need food, who need housing. A couple with the fact that we talk about the, fine, the, the declining social services. How the hell can parents afford to feed their children? This is crazy. This is madness. And if we don't understand fundamentally what the reality is that, you know, uh, you know, wishful thinking is not going to change any stuff. We have to organize to confront this stuff. And also, when you talk about the fact that one-tenth of one percent of the population own 43 percent of the economy, that is absurd. And particularly when you talk about systematically transferring wealth from the poorest people in society in terms of cutting social services to give the money to the very, very rich who don't need it anyway. This is this is this is madness. But in any event, you know, as always, Brother Africa, I encourage people to unravel the matrix. One thing is clear, you know, we have to fundamentally understand that. Listen, I understand it's, it's justifiable in terms of being scared, afraid. These people are crazy, and it's certainly being fearful is understandable. But you know, but the bottom line is this: none of these in, in, in these insanities, in the, none of this, this, these inequalities that impact humanity are going to change. And we have to fundamentally understand that not only is the government insane. But you got large masses of people in this country who are also insane, who've been internalized to believe that destruction of humanity is in the best interest of humanity. That is absurd. That is crazy. But nonetheless, that is the reality. We need organizations. We need institutions. We have to begin to confront the reality. We must create those 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 conditions that favorably impact our children to protect their emotional, psychological, and intellectual capabilities. If we don't do that, there's no one to blame but ourselves. Having said that, Brother Africa. You have a good night. And you say, Brother Haki, you have a good night. And we'd like to thank all our participants, our panelists, and analysts for giving their perspectives, independent perspectives on the various subjects. We'd like to thank Camille for her excellent job with doing her presentation on human rights and power. And, of course, we'd like to thank you, the listening audience, for allowing us to come to your home this evening where we can speak truth to the powerful and the powerless. As we stated earlier, we may not give you what you want, but we definitely the best to give you what you need. I would like to just make a correction in terms of last week's lawsuit that was um, that was filed by the courts inside the U.S. inside the U.S. or done by the Center for the Center for Constitutional Rights, National Lawyer Bills, Palestine Legal. Please check out that case as well as the case that we at the, um, that was in Hague. You can find out more information by going to the website of the AAPRPGC at www.a-aprp-gc.org. Remember, without information, you cannot thank, and without organization, you cannot thank clearly. We encourage you to join an organization that is fighting for your people. And, of course, next week in part two, we will definitely get into Africa's fighting on many fronts. Join us 
support us, and spread the word. Remember, we don't die, we just multiply. You have been listening to Brother Africa, and this has been Africa on the Moon, and we'll leave you with some music of liberation, and we will continue to travel down the road of liberation until next week. Let's move to go forward, Apple, back with novel. Chains, living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by a noose, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know. I must be strong to last through my journey, yeah, to last through my journey, yeah. Time will arrive when we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. We must prepare and learn how to care, but soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh how beautiful I will be to know that I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through. My journey, yeah, 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 yeah. Made it through my journey. Made it through my journey. Hellerino, a bloodline across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia. A scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces, crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk 
and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance to inspire a fire like the sun pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people. The love of my people shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. When the light is clear, oh how beautiful I will be to know that I've been here and made it through my journey. Yeah, and made it through my journey. Yeah, 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 yeah.
Through the hills and valleys 
Africa is 